hello, hello. Welcome back the people on my floor. New episode. Um, it's late summer, early fall, beautiful weather in Chapel Hill. Um, I recently had one of my closest friends in, uh, in and around visiting for um, the weekend, Nabil Ayers, um, who runs, currently runs 4AD. Um, out of their New York office. Uh, also has his own label, The Control Group. Also played in a lot of bands and is a killer drummer and generally a great dude. Um, fascinating guy. Kind of been around a long time and done a lot of awesome things. And um, Nabil and I met years ago, shortly after I was hired at the record label where I worked for many years. Uh, he was hired to run 4AD. And um, we kind of clicked right away and became fast friends. He ended up being one of my groomsmen, which he likes to joke was not that big of an honor because I had 20 groomsmen. Um, but considering all the cool people I know and all the great friends I have and generally what a universally fucking loved guy I am, I, I consider it a huge honor. Um, anyway, Nabil and I have been to a lot of places and done a lot of cool stuff and seen a lot of cool bands together and he was in town um, to see Tune Yards, one of uh, 4AD's marquee recording artists, one of my favorite artists around in the world, one of my favorite people in the world. Hopefully we'll get her and Nate, well, them, I guess Tune Yards is them, and we will get Meryl and Nate on our show someday, on our podcast. Until then, we have to settle for Nabil. Um, I won't tell you anymore. Great guy. I love him to death. I wish he uh, could have stayed a little bit longer, but we had a fantastic weekend. We ate some great food. We drank some strong drinks. And um, here we go. My conversation with Nabil Ayers, late of 4AD, always of the control group, and formerly of bands like The Lemons and Alien Crime Syndicate and The Long Winters. So, we're here in the record room, and we just had a, a nice, great intro with Nabil Ayers. And it didn't record, so we're starting over. We, we only got six minutes and 40 seconds in. Yeah, I think I was only seven years old. In the... Yeah, yeah. We were, we, were, we, were on our, we were into the 10th hour. <laughs> Many years to go. Yeah. So, I'm going to give you the short version of what we just went through. Nabil Ayers, good friend of mine, one of my longest, oldest friends in the record business, Excuse me. Uh, we're drinking beers here. Uh, down in town to see Tune Yards. Um, Nabil uh, has, has lived a life in music. Um, started out playing in bands. Um, then went on to open and operate one of the most revered record stores in America, Seattle's Sonic Boom Records, which is still around. Though Nabil and his partner, longtime partner Jason, no longer own it. It's still there. Um, for a long time and still, he runs his own private, per, not private. It's private, I guess, right? It's not public. I mean, it's, you're, you're right. You're right. His own private record label called The Control Group, in which he focuses on Scandinavian women uh, <laughs> and, and, very little, and very little beyond that. And, uh, and now, for the last almost decade, runs um, the U.S. office of the uh, revered 4AD, one of the most... Regarded, respected, and industry-leading independent record labels. Record labels. Um, so anyway, 
We're going to start from the beginning. So Nabil was born in New York City? New York City. New York City Hospital. Right. Um, got into music? Pretty much from the get-go. Um, grew up with my mom, who's not a musician. She's a dancer, but... What kind of dancer? Uh, she grew up being a ballet dancer and you know stopped pretty early, but still dances to this day for fun and exercise and stuff like that. Was she doing it professionally? Uh, till she was like 19, which, right. is, which I think is old for a dancer. It's over the hill yeah. for dancing. Exactly. Um, and then you had an uncle. Yeah. Your uh, mom's brother. Yeah, who I'm still super close to. He's two years younger than her. Um, he's a jazz saxophonist who went to Berklee College of Music in Boston and... You know, sort of my father figure, he was always around and really exposed me to tons of music. We're always listening to music. We're seeing lots of live music. Every one of his friends was a musician, even when we just, you know, go out to dinner or whatever. It was really just like surrounded by it at a really young age um, and started to play drums on pots and pans like kids do. And he bought me a drum set when I was two and a half years old. And I not in New York, which we've got. This is, yeah, this is we'd moved to Am- or sorry, to Boston, Cambridge. For a couple of years, and I totally remember him actually showing up with it. It was like this 70s orange sparkle, like really beat up, but really cool Ludwig set. It was like orange and silver, like splotches. Yeah. Do you know those? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it was like rickety, and like the symbols might have even been cracked, but it was a drum no, set. No was, bottom heads. Right, of course not. Yeah, yeah. But I was two and a half years old, so right. who fucking cares? It was amazing. <laughs> I didn't know any other two and a half year olds with the drums. Right. So had this drum set and I played it all the time and I you know I think I just kind of like picked stuff up and would like play along to records that I had and a lot of these musicians who were around would sit with me for a little while and teach me stuff um but again these were professional musicians yeah and these are all jazz musicians at the time and I think I was probably exposed to more jazz than anything um but then I saw you know Kiss albums and like all five-year-olds who that I think was actually marketed to. Maybe I was a little young, but like it was for kids, right? That right. band. Right. And I fell right into the trap. I was like, what is this? Those guys look so cool. It's so scary. Um, and so the first record I bought on my own, air quotes, um, was Kiss Destroyer because the cover looked amazing. And I'd heard about this band and I'd seen these pictures. And uh, I just listened to it constantly and loved it and would, you know, try to play along and learn those songs and got crazy into that band um, and into like whatever, what was I in? Like the Village People and Blondie, just like that era of good, me, good and bad music. Yeah. <laughs> music. Yeah. yeah. Pop music when some pop music was still yeah, right, right. good, um, culturally and, speaking. And when I was seven, my mom took me to see Kiss at Madison Square Garden on the Dynasty Tour, which was incredible. And that was Peter Chris playing drums still. That was the original lineup, um, you know. The crazy sign and explosions and Gene Simmons spinning blood and flying and like really, you know, I'd seen lots of live music for a seven-year-old, but I'd never seen anything like that. It was totally crazy and amazing and changed my life and, you know, pretty much made me sure that that's what I wanted to do or at least want to do something like that. And at the same time, I think something interesting that was happening um, as my record collection grew and we had more around the house, I started to strangely notice like all the Kiss records had this Casablanca logo on it and the actual label on the records all looked the same. And other records looked like that too, like Donna Summer and the Village People. And then, you know, I started to figure out that there are these things. I didn't quite know what they meant, but rec- records had something in common. They had similar logos. And that Most was... people still don't know what they mean. <laughs> right. I can't tell you how many people think I'm a record producer. <laughs> like Me too. I've never <laughs> produced a record. <laughs> my, this is my, my, my mother used to say that. My son's a record producer. I'm not, I'm not a record producer. Yeah. So. so that's how I kind of started to at least understand in some regard what a record label was and that there are these, these sort of entities that existed behind those records that helped them get out to people like me. So I think that was interesting because as I grew up, 
I was always, I mean, always into music. And, you know, from there, just kind of always played in bands or trying to throw something together with friends, or punk bands or rock bands or cover bands all through high school. Um, but I always knew that that existed. And, you know, once I got older, in high school, you start following things on certain labels and start paying attention and realize that Discord, you know, oh, most of the stuff they put out, I like. Right. SST, you know, SST, whatever. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that. And so that was exciting. Um, and I was in Salt Lake City at the time. We moved there when I was... Why were you guys moving so much? <laughs> you know, why not? Just, yeah. Uh, all the East Coast stuff, I th- I'm not even sure when I was a kid, but when I was 10, my mom and I lived in New York and she worked for American Express and they moved a big part of the company to Salt Lake. So that okay. was like, we had no connection to Salt Lake other than like... Hey, so it was for a job. Yeah. Because totally. no one just moves to Salt Lake. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. Right. Which, um, is, which is, listen, I have all the love in the world for Salt Lake. Great town. Great yeah. town. But um, no one just goes, no one says, you know what? I'm going to give Salt Lake a try. <laughs> right. Okay, so she was moved there for work. But we did, and it was great, and it was funny, because part of the thing, you know, we lived in this small one-bedroom apartment in New York, but in Salt Lake, we are going to have a way bigger place. She would have more money, because she'd be making more in, in a city that costs considerably less, and so part of the deal was I was going to get a new drum set if we moved. And I, till, till that point, had the one that I'd had since I was two, which was just a disaster. It was barely playable. So you were all in on the move. So Yeah, so we got this new drum set from Sam Ash in New York, had it shipped to our new apartment in Salt Lake, and I and that's right, and like MTV was happening, and like, you know, Salt Lake had better radio stations than New York, because New York's never had good radio stations. Right. Um, and strangely, like, saw way more live music there, because everyone came through Salt Lake, and I think it was just easier to go. Like, like it was where they, I mean, where'd they play? I mean, there were like, tons of arena shows at the Salt Palace, I and mean, I saw right. everything there. Def Leppard like, and shit. Def Leppard. Um, but also, like once I got into high school, even junior high, there like there's so many punk shows there, and everything that was happening in California, Salt Lake is so close. So like, I saw Descendants probably seven or eight times in high school because I'd play there all the time because it was easy. Did you ever think? How old are you? Forty two. Forty five. Forty five. As, as we record this interview, yeah. Forty five. Did you ever think? Well, that's good that you have some sort of presumption about my productive production time. <laughs> that you might be forty right. six by the time. <laughs> Editor's note: He's forty seven now. <laughs> Uh, did you have any idea that the Descendants would still be touring? <laughs> right, that, that is the funny thing about every band I saw then. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but they never really stopped, though, or did they? They changed their name. They got a different singer, a couple different singers, and changed their and name to all. all, and now they kind of flip back and forth, mm-hmm. I think. But, um, but yeah, that was an exciting time. That was also, you know, seeing Kiss in an arena, and then seeing lots of, when I was in Salt Lake, younger, seeing whatever, Def Leppard and bands like that in arenas. Then realizing later, like seeing punk shows and realizing, oh my God, like whatever, there's no flames, there's no sound guy. This guy's like right in front of me. Like these are just people making music. Right. This is really exciting. Right. In fact, this is even more exciting, or at least in a different way than that huge spectacle thing. Um, no, I think every kid has that where it's like your first entree to any kind of music is something huge. Right. Because no kid's going to have good taste when he's 10. So I was listening to Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen <laughs> being from the Jersey Shore. But then you discover, you know, VFW shows. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, I could do this, too. Right, totally. Like, he's just some kid from the local high school. Right. I mean, my biggest thing at that time was like Jay Maskus, who I thought was like, he might as well right. have been Bruce Springsteen. Because <laughs> right. I was like, it doesn't get bigger than Maskus. And then I would see like the local punk rock bands or the local hardcore bands. And Anyway, go on. Yeah. Um so I graduated high school in Salt Lake, you know, just seeing tons of shows and um, playing in various, you know, just bullshit high school punk bands that were fun. And then went to college at the University of Puget Sound, which is in Tacoma, Washington, like 45 minutes south of Seattle. Why, why did you? I mean, because Seattle wasn't really happening then. It wasn't, but it was like, 
Like, what brought you there? I think a lot of kids from Salt Lake went to Seattle and Portland to college. And okay. my mom was really, really concerned with me going to a good college, um, which is nice of her. And because <laughs> I was less concerned with it, but I wanted to go to a cool city more than anything. And so all the places I looked at where I looked at a lot of colleges, Seattle, Portland, and kind of like not LA or San Francisco, but like other California spots yeah. and just really, really like Seattle, even though UPS wasn't in Seattle officially, it was close enough. Um, and like Portland a lot too, but decided to go there. I think actually because I didn't know anyone who had gone there. Right. And I was like, if I'm going to go away to college, I'm not going to go to the place where I know four kids. I'm going to go to this place where I know no kids. So that seems fun. And they had, a college radio station, you know, there are enough things that I knew, like, I wasn't going to go to music school. I didn't want to do that, but I wanted to somehow be involved. And so it seemed like there would be a way to do that. Were you playing in bands throughout high school? Yeah. Um, Doing what? Cover bands or punk bands? Yeah, both. Yeah. I mean, I think every band in high school starts out as a cover band, right? And then you end up like someone writes a song and it's like, whoa. Every band in high school starts out as like a specific, like we only cover Weezer songs. (laughs) Or like we only cover, you know, Mr. T experience songs. Mm -hmm. So, and then yes. And then somebody's like, hey, I wrote a song. Yeah. And I was, you know, it was like, my high school bands are really fun. It's a band like a, you know, great people like Mormon kids whose dads would like buy us a PA because he was the president of a bank and we were playing but didn't know that his son was like chugging Robitussin the whole time during band practice like really weird town and that's a whole nother podcast I suppose but uh, (laughs) really fun place and fun bands and uh, so I went to college same thing sort of immediately met the music dudes my age who wanted to play and who liked Jane's Addiction and got into Soundgarden or whatever. Because when was this, like 88? 89. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of stuff was happening then, even though Seattle hadn't totally blown up internationally, it was definitely happening. It was cool there. Yeah. It was awesome there. Yeah, and I started DJing at KUPS. Kind of like Austin right now. Nobody really knows Austin is (laughs) like about to blow up. It's like a little little enclave down there, some (laughs) vegetarian tacos, I think. (laughs) Um, I hear it's the next Brooklyn. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, that's Brooklyn. It's the next Brooklyn's the next Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, we've cycled back where Brooklyn sucked. <laughs> it's gonna be cool soon. And now it's getting cool yeah, yeah. again. All right, cool. So, so right. So this is before, but Soundgarden is a thing. Yeah. Mother Love Bone is a thing. Yeah. Green dudes. River is a thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and at the same time, just college radio is a thing. And my friend and I are DJs at KUPS, and really, what that was all about. We you know, no one, you know, nobody listened to that station or to our show. But we got to go there two hours every week and like look through all the CDs that had arrived that week, which is insane. Or like look through CMJ magazine, which at the time was like, uh, it had one staple in the upper left corner. It was like a, like a pamphlet. Yeah. A pamphlet. And we just look at that and read reviews and be like, Oh my God, failure. Who's that? You know, like actually like, it was just a really fun place to learn about shit. So that's kind of what we did there. And what else is going on? We went to lots of shows, but still, you know, I'm trying to think who we saw then. I don't really remember. 1989, 90. I mean, <laughs> I Nirvana is probably playing. Not, not quite yet. Yeah, I didn't get into Nirvana yet, even though that was happening. I was late right. on that. But Jane's is playing. Mm-hmm. Soundgarden's playing. Yeah, the first Lollapalooza was, I guess, maybe summer of 90 or 91, maybe. Um, but the big Nirvana... Because who were, like, the biggest cool bands in the world then? Beastie Boys? Yeah, that was Pixies. still... Pixies. Right, yeah. Pixies are huge. I mean, yeah. The, uh, KUPS at the station was, like, Pixies, Pavement. Right. It was, like, the essential... Pavement. American indie yeah. rock band. Because Pavement had that weird, like, Central California Urge connection. Overkill. <laughs> yeah. Big deal um, but, yeah, the real Seattle moment came when... So I remember... So I got into Nirvana. Bleach was out. Um, and that record was incredible. And, you know, me and my friends and roommates were super into it at the same time. Of course, had started a band, and we were just playing in like college bars and parties, and it was just like covers and stuff. Um, and my roommate 
actually was in that band, Mr. Bungle. (laughs) 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 He's my freshman roommate. He he left that because the trumpet player in that band, he left to go to college. Um, and Mike Patton, who's the singer in Mr. Bungle, left Mr. Bungle to go be the singer in Faith No More, like right, right around the same time. So right. I remember we were super into Faith No More when the real thing came out. That right. was a big deal. And just like Metallica always. Um, but the Seattle thing really like started to click when my friend and I tried to go. There's a there there's like an open call, a huge full page ad in that magazine, The Rocket, which is like the Seattle alternative music yeah. weekly. There's a big ad for it was an open call for extras because there's sh- Cameron Crowe was making a movie and there's going to be a live Alice in Chains scene and they needed they needed an audience. And Wait a like, minute, was it? Um, hold, don't I mean <laughs> don't blow my story. Here, oh, dude. oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, <laughs> all right, sorry. I'm, I'm trying to spin a little magic here. This That's is uh, you know I'm trying to make the this listeners is podcast magic. Yeah, this is why they don't press skip right now. Right, 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 right. Things are happening, so <laughs> we've warmed up to this. So. It's not skip, it's the 15 seconds. <laughs> right. It's a rainy afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> got a double time now. It's a rainy afternoon. <laughs> so we're like, we got to do this. This sounds amazing. No way we get to see Allison Chase. So we drive up to Seattle Center, which is just, that's why the Space Needle is like a big park. There's this huge parking lot. We got there. There are thousands of people in this parking lot. And we're like, oh, there's no fucking way we're getting into this, obviously. So what do we do? We're in Seattle. We've driven all the way up here, 45 minutes. It's like six o'clock in the evening, so we start looking through the rocket, and we're like, "Oh, that band Nirvana is playing tonight at the OK Hotel, which is like this three hundred person all ages venue downtown." And we didn't know Seattle that well at the time because we lived in Tacoma nearby. So we were like, "Well, let's uh, let's do this. Let's go down there, figure out where it is, get our tickets, and then just like go get dinner and come back to the show or something." So we go down there, pay our five bucks or whatever, like the first people at the door. Go to dinner, come back. There's like hundreds of people outside who can't get in, and we kind of fight our way in because we had whatever got stamped and everything and uh and there's some band playing before them i think it was fits of depression i think it was fits of depression bikini kill who opened that show but we didn't know who either of those bands were at the time and uh did you know who nirvana was yeah yeah just we had bleach but we had you know they were just like right a sludgy a band, band yeah. on sub pop sure. with a black and white album cover like right. we didn't think like they're great but like this is not a big deal that we're getting to see them this is just cool it's not gonna be a paradigm shifting band <laughs> right 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 so in between bands, we kind of got, we were able to get really close. And, uh, and who was the third band? Bikini Kill? Bikini Kill played first. We missed them. And it was, I think it was Fits of Depression who played second. It's a great bill. Yeah. It's great. pretty good for five bucks. <laughs> Not bad. It's a great $5 show. <laughs> right. So, you know, the gear changes and everything. We're really close to the stage. And, like, we're just looking just like these sort of goofy dudes. And we don't know what they look like. It's like in 1990 or whatever. Like, we, we don't really have the internet yet or anything other than this. The like, picture on the cover was, right, a, was a Xerox. Yeah, you couldn't plus, see shit. Right, yeah. So, so we're watching them set up and checking everything. And this dude with, like, bright pink hair starts checking the guitar and everything. And then he starts playing a song. It turns out to be that song, Polly, that's on yeah. uh, Nevermind. And I remember thinking, it's such a, like, naive thought. And I was like, oh, that's cool. They let their guitar tech, like, open with a song. <laughs> Before <laughs> before they play, that that seems really nice yeah. of him, and uh, and then that song ends, and I remember they played Big Cheese, which is I think actually a B side from Bleach, but people think is on Bleach, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the place just went fucking crazy. Once the band kicked in, we realized like, oh, this is actually the band. Oh, weird, they set up their own gear. Oh, you know, yeah. for some reason we the were, guitar. Think, they let their guitar. Yeah, tech. we might have been back in arena rock world again by that point. So, and uh, and that show, it still like really like plagues me as this weird. You know, I think a lot of people go to shows like that. Like they were, I mean, they were so fucking good. They played most of Nevermind, which no one had heard yet because the record wasn't out yet. It's the show where the first time they played "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Um, it was incredible. And when we walked out, I didn't have this. Like, you know, I'd, I've seen so many shows at that point that I was excited about, and I left, and I was like, you know, 
excited or happy or like felt really like amped. And I walked out of there and I felt terrible and like my stomach hurt and I felt depressed and I felt really sad. And it was like this really weird, heavy thing. And I was trying to figure out what was wrong with me. I was like, why do I feel like such shit? And I, I figured, I was like, it's just because that just ruined everything I'd ever seen right. ever. Right. Like why have I ever listened to anything or seen any band? Cause they were just so much better than that. It was really weirdly powerful <laughs> thing. Um, or like, you know, some deep recessed realization that I'm probably never going to be in a band that good. <laughs> yeah, you know, right, like I'm too. like, I love playing drums and I love being in bands and yeah, I, uh, uh, you know what? <laughs> right. Hey, well, let's go back and practice. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm trying to think there was a band that we, um, it wasn't, there was a band that we played with and that happened. Not to that extent, but it was just like, and my band was good. We were a great live band and it was just like, no. Yeah, <laughs> it was just so powerful, yeah. and so and especially at the time, it was like there's still, I was had always been into both metal and new wave, right. and at a lot of the shows I went to in high school, you know, if you could go see The Cure or New Order, it was those kids, yeah. and if you went to see whatever fucking Motley Crue or somebody else, it was those kids. But I remember seeing Jane's Addiction in high school and looking around and be like, oh, everyone is here. This right. is like the first band to me that really brought everyone together, and they're the Goths and the punks, like everyone in the same room. And the Nirvana show didn't feel so much like that, but to me, the music actually felt like that. It was right. the first band that really sort of sounded like everything, like it sounded like the Beatles, but it was way heavier than most heavy bands. Like right. it was this weird, especially live, it was like this really interesting blend that fucked me up. And they killed live. Mm, they were so good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was with... That was Dave Grohl. That was... That was was that the two... When, when, what's his name? That was the three... That was just Dave Grohl and Chris Novosel. Oh, it wasn't with the original guitar player? No, no. Because that was uh, Jason Everman. Jason Everman. So <laughs> yeah. it wasn't the. Do um, uh, you know about the Maxwells, the famed Maxwell show? Right. Yeah. That if you talk to anyone over the age, yeah, of, everyone was there. Everyone was there, <laughs> yeah. except for the forty people that were there. <laughs> right. And we'll tell you, there was only forty fucking people there. <laughs> right. So all right, so you're playing in bands in college. So your life has changed. Your life is so. What, so where the fuck do you go from there? Like, I just went back to school the next day. Just <laughs> sell your <laughs> drums. Like no, I, mean, I didn't make any changes in my life. I think I was just suddenly. Trying to th- I don't know if musically that got me into any more stuff, except I spent that summer, I went back to Salt Lake that summer and spent that summer collecting. The only way to get all those songs, I got into a Goldmine magazine, which is like a record collector's magazine that I still exists, that. I think. And it's like the teeniest ad font size, like classifieds to buy like all kinds of weird records, tons of which are bootlegs. And that's where all, because they'd recorded Nevermind once for Sub Pop with Butch Vig. Right much like rougher recordings, which have now been released on that box set and everything, which sound great. And then they re-recorded it for Geffen. At least that's the story. So all those Butch Vig recordings existed on bootleg seven inches. But Butch Vig cut the Geffen recordings, too, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, he did both, yeah. There's just two, like they're that. just two different mixes. I think so. Or, <laughs> or two different sessions. Whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I spent all summer, like, working jobs and saving up. These seven inches were $10 a piece plus shipping, which was a lot at the time. Right. It's almost still a lot for a seven inch. Um, and you'd never know what they had because they all had weird names because no one actually knew what the songs were called. And so like, I think Breed was called Emodium. Like, they all had these weird yeah. made up names. Yes. And so I'd get the seven inch in the mail you know, a week after I sent someone a money order for it in where they're all in like Silver Spring, Maryland is where a lot of them were for okay. some reason. Yeah, See now, those were when I was like thirteen, fourteen. Those were all like bootleg Japanese CDs, right, 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 that you could buy, and Emodium was on it, and there was like you know, um, yeah, they they all had you know, 
these alternate takes and shit, and right. you didn't know what the hell you were getting because it was pre-internet. So yeah, so these are all the seven inches that would show up, and right. I would play it, and sometimes I'd be lucky to be like two killer songs that I remember from that set. Right. Um, or it would be one good song and one shitty song. Like it was just really, but I still have all these. I have like uh, probably fifteen seven inches from that summer. I just kept buying them every time I saw one. It took forever to get them. Um, and then through college, you know, just kept, whatever, got super into it, like spent way more money on music. There's so many record stores in Seattle. We'd go up to Seattle every weekend. There are even good stores in Tacoma. Right. Um, and then, you know, got into like drive like Jehu and like, so, you know, after, after that Nirvana stuff blew up, either music started to get weirder or it just became easier to get weirder music. I right. think that's probably what actually happened. Right. Probably a little of both. Yeah, yeah. So we spent so much time and every penny I had in record stores. Well, I mean, you had, stuff. I mean, the greatest, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest cultural coups of all time is the fact that the Butthole Surfers had a major label deal. <laughs> and a hit. And a hit. <laughs> and a hit. Uh, and went on tour with Stone Temple Pilots. <laughs> right. And Jawbox, I think, was on that tour, too. Really? Yeah. I, I, tour. <laughs> I really pissed somebody off recently because I was arguing that Jawbox is significantly better than Jawbreaker. Oh, you're right. I'm correct. Yeah. But there's this whole, you know, the whole Jawbreaker reunion thing and everybody's got there. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so so I think that obviously opened the door for a lot of these weird fucking bands because of right. course everybody was in the hunt for the next and lame ones too, yeah, right, exactly. So you had you know um, Bush, Bush, and Stone Temple Pilots who there's some there's some good SDP stuff. <laughs> Big Bang Baby. <sighs> <Okay. John laughs> no, there's one. No, there is one Stone Temple Pilot song I like, and I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, um, but who am I? I mean, there's also only one Pearl Jam song I like, and. There's two Pearl Jam songs that What like. are they? Do the Evolution, uh-huh. which is a fucking jam, and Spin the Black Circle. <laughs> yeah, it's like the punk song. Which is a jam. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, anyway, all right. So, there's weirder music popping up. You're getting into weirder shit. Are you taking drugs? Not really. No, I was never, I've always been more of a drinky guy. Yeah. Never been that into drugs. Like, yeah. hot a little bit, but that's not really my thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you were always the guy I could count on as the the other resident not drug taker <laughs> in the New York City record business. Right. You were the only other guy I could ever count on to not be in the bathroom. Um, that's not to indict anyone at all. No, just uh, everyone. Just everyone. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> so, uh, so my big sort of career, I guess, break retrospectively comes when... I really want to get an internship at a record company. I'm super into sub pop. CZ Records is sort of the, I guess, secondary, but still a great label in Seattle. Has like Built to Spill and the Melvins and Hammerbox and a bunch of you know, like right. more punk, but also kind of weird stuff. What did Built to Spill do with them? I thought the first record was on CZ. That was before Up. Yeah. Really? It's, uh, Ultimate Alternative Wave. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The one like Family Photo. Yes. On the cover. I always That's thought that was on Up. CZ, because all the Tree People records are on CZ. And That's right. Doug left. I think he owed them one more record, and it became the first Built to Spill record. You learn something new every day. Yeah, exactly. And today I learned something new. Uh, so I was really trying to get internships at both of those labels. They're both in Seattle. And at the time, the ways to try to do that were to call, to mail, or to go by. Right. Because <laughs> it wasn't email or web, really. Right. So I called all the time. They'd always be like, yeah, we have your resume. You know, feel free to stop by sometime. Call, come back. You know, we're not hiring interns right now, but we will. It's like that kind of like, very long runaround. Was it Nils Bernstein answering the phone? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I'll never know. But um, And would go by sometimes, and they were always really nice. But, you know, never got anything there, which still makes me mad to this day, but it's probably meant to be. But, uh but I saw a posting, like, surprisingly in the, you know, whatever, university job place for, they were looking for an intern for Polygram Group Distribution, which at the time, which I knew, which is one of the, I think there's three now, but which is one of the big six major label distributors. 
And Polygram had, I mean, they were, I think they were the biggest at the time. They had A&M and Island and Mercury and a bunch of labels that had, you know, huge, whatever, Bon Jovi and Kiss and stuff like that. Right. But also Soundgarden was on A&M. There was Molly a Crew. Sort of, I don't know the crew was on. Crew was Mercury. Were they? They were on Mercury. Well, maybe they were. I don't know. Kiss was on Mercury. Kiss was on Mercury. <laughs> so I got in touch and like got a call back pretty quickly. Maybe I was, I was surprised sort of how easy it was. I went up to Seattle, interviewed this woman, got along great with her. Um, and so had this really great year-long internship there, which was pretty like record store focused. I mean, they had the office was just in her house. This is a distro. This is distro. So it okay. wasn't a specific label as the whole distribution right. group. So her job was to really like like be the Seattle person, but also to like super serve tons and tons of Northwest record stores. So, you know, I did huge mailings of a hundred when a new record would come out, I'd mail all the promos and all the posters to every store in the Northwest. We'd go buy those stores and do poster displays. I would sort of do guest lists for shows, like, you know, just a lot of like normal entry level yeah. label stuff. It was fun. I met a ton of people, learned a lot, saw tons of shows. It was really, I mean, I loved it. It was great. And right. I, you know, that kind of as much as I was still playing in a band, I think I kind of always knew, like, this is also really interesting to me and seems really fun. When I graduated from college, really didn't want to get a job, um, like a real job. I was working at a temp agency because I also, I wanted to, like, finally get in a real band. Right. Even if that just meant, like, a shitty band that could tour, just right. that sounded fun. Right. Um, but ended up getting a job at Easy Street Records, which is still there to this day, a great record store in West Seattle. Um, and similar kind of thing, like, really... Shout out Matt Vaughn. What's up, Matt? <laughs> um, I doubt he listens, but he may listen to this episode. Got super into that. Um, I, because of my experience at Polygram, Matt made me, he's like, you know, you're the, you'll be the guy that deals with all the label people, when all, all the use at Polygram when they need right. poster displays, when we need our people on guest lists, right. you're that guy. So it's great. So it's a good guy to be. Totally right. So I was like, all the labels wanted to get a hold of me for tracking or try to get me to come to shows and to come to dinners. And it was like, great. I mean, I, you know, made probably six fifty an hour or something. We got so much free food and drink and shows and everything. It was And free music. Right. It was an amazing job. Yeah. Really fun, really fun. People learned a ton about music because, you know, this is like if you work in a record store, like a lot of people have. Right. It's such a great way to learn about music because you work with all these different people who play different shit all day long. Yeah. It's really like incredible musical education. Um, and at the same time, I sort of fell into this band that I wasn't that into, but like liked the guys and sort of fell into this weird opportunity where a friend of mine managed another band called The Lemons, who are like this sort of Ramones, suburban rock, punk rock band that I'd seen a lot and kind of knew the guys. And I just happened to be at his office when he was like freaking out because their drummer had broken his arm slipping down a staircase. Turns out he was sneaking off to try out for Everclear. Two things. <laughs> You're just telling the story of that thing you do, first of all. <laughs> all right. He broke his arm. I don't... <laughs> okay. Wait, second of all, who is the Cameron Crowe movie? Oh, we never came back to that. <laughs> that turned out to be singles. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, so we didn't With get in Mookie singles Blaylock. that night. We did see Nirvana that Way night. better. Yeah. Way better. All right, so you break Tom Hanks' arm. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and it's uh, you and Ethan Embry. And so, and so he's like, fuck. I, don't, I, don't, I forgot to mention. So I played drums all through high school. In college, the bands I was in, I played guitar because I play guitar too. And my best friend played drums. And so he was the drummer in the band and I was the guitar player. So right. a lot of people that I knew in Seattle only thought I played guitar. But I still played drums and had all my life. So when Don, this guy was freaking out that uh, some guy had just broken his arm and the Lemons had their biggest show ever opening for Mudhoney in one week. I was like, oh, I'll do it. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, no, I play drums too. Trust me. So 
I talked to them and went down to their practice place, and I already knew most of the songs, and we kind of did it. And it, you know, the plan was this: this will be one fun fill-in thing, great. And it was th- it's this free concert series in Seattle called Pain in the Grass, and it's when Mud Honey were like at their probably biggest. It turns out there were nine thousand people there. It's the first time I've ever played with this band. And that's at the Seattle Center. Yeah, like I know right that. under the Space Needle. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, incredible, so much fun. And like I said, like I mean, really like the guys. Music was fine. But it was just like good hang. such a fun thing to do. And that's what drummers do too anyway. Right? You right. gotta drop in and drop out. Right. Um so just kind of kept playing with them and it turned into like, oh, I guess I'm in this band and actually this is going great and it's really fun. And they'd already been talking to a bunch of labels and stuff was happening. So I got in right at the right time because they'd been working hard for a few years, but we ended up signing with Mercury less than a year after I joined the band. And like, you know, gone to New York a couple times and gone to LA. Suddenly I'm like 22, 23 in Seattle, working at this record store, playing in a real band, getting flown around by major labels. It was fucking crazy. Thanks to Nirvana. <laughs> All thanks to Nirvana. <laughs> so we signed with Mercury. I quit my job at Easy Street. We make a record, and this is like that incredible time in the early 90s where everyone was getting signed, yeah. but no one was selling records. I mean, you think everyone was, yeah. but no one was. There were so many more bands yeah. getting signed and putting out records on major labels, and, and we were one of them. Even the bands who were selling records, I think you and I had this conversation <laughs> last time I saw you. I was, for some reason, I was reading Fountains of Wayne's Wikipedia page. <laughs> Don't ask me why. But I remember, and this was later, late 90s, but I remember reading their second album, Sold three hundred and fifty thousand records. <laughs> like an abominable, a major <laughs> disappointment, a major disappointment. So even the bands who were selling records right. weren't selling records. Right. So think about our band selling like three thousand right. records on right. Mercury, like it was an embarrassment. <laughs> but but you know we but we had a great time and did some. And you yeah. guys got paid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no one we didn't make a lot of money in that deal, but sure. we I didn't work for two years. Exactly. Never went to Europe, which is too bad. We got we had a seven-week tour opening for Seven Year Bitch, sharing a bus with them. We were kind of friends with them, and it was like the way to split cost. That was booked in Europe. I probably still have the like facts with the dates. And of course, Mercury towards well, it's getting closer. Like right. we're not paying for this. Right. What are you talking about? Because they were happened. they were Seattle band or they were yeah yeah Olympia. They, they were, were Seattle. They're in Atlantic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we toured the U.S. a lot. We opened for the Circle Jerks. I actually got to watch them break up backstage in Detroit for like whatever the third time, whenever the last time they broke up was. Whatever the last time they we broke up. We toured with all. Um, just like, you know, really fun stuff and lots of great stories. And I'm still friends with those guys. And it was great. And, uh, and it kind of started to fall apart because that's what happens. And then I went back to Easy Street, which is great to be able to sort of fall right back into that. And at the time, there's, you know, some of the same people there, some different people there. And there's this guy, Jason. We got along really well with. It turns out he's a DJ on a couple different radio stations in town, and it's like super into music. Um, and I think I hadn't been back for that long, and he was the one who, like, you know, I think I was in another band now, like a sort of more pop band with some friends of mine. That was like we were really trying to like make it. And it was fun, and we were getting great shows, and it was sort of like going really well. But I wasn't in any place to like quit my job or anything. And uh, and I remember Jason saying to me once, he's like, you know how. Like you know, you like you seem like fine at your job at Easy Street, but like every second of free time, whatever on your lunch break, you're always on the phone. You're booking shows. You're doing stuff for your band. And he's like, and because you had to book shows on the phone, yeah, back then, <laughs> right, yeah. right, yeah, or by carrier, which pigeon. gives me anxiety even thinking <laughs> right. about doing. Yeah, but Jason's like, you know, and it, from his point of view, he he was on the other hand working overtime for the store and like you know putting so much into it. He's like, how come he was at Easy Street? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he's like, it's just he's like, I'm like busting my ass for this job, and what are you doing? You know, you're just like doing the bare minimum, not really criticizing me, just like actually asking me, like you know, how is it that you're able to do this other stuff in addition to like the bare minimum of your right. job. I was like, look, I love the store. I love Matt and I love music and this job and everything, but like I'm not here to 
go crazy for this job. I do exactly what I'm supposed to do, and I think I do it well. But when I have any time that's mine, I do stuff for me or for like other things I'm interested in, and that's not because you're paying me six dollars an hour. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't in any <laughs> kind of negative way. I just wasn't in a position where I wanted to like work any harder than I was right. supposed to right. at my normal job. Right. So he's like, "Huh, we should open a record store." <laughs> and I was like, what? That was the conversation. <laughs> yeah. And he's a, a political economy major from Berkeley. Like, you know, neither right. of us is like, when I grew up, I want to run a record store. Right. Like, we were just working there because we love music and it was a cool job. It's a cool and, job. And who knows Me cool what people. we were going to do. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to be in a band. I didn't know what he wanted to do, but he suggested that. And I was like, huh, that's a really interesting idea. And we kind of, it came together really weirdly quickly. Like, we decided on this neighborhood in Seattle, Fremont at the time, which is like, I don't know if you want to call it Williamsburg, but like a cool, artsy, kind of not quite populated, formerly hippie. Like we were just like, that's one of the only neighborhoods in Seattle that doesn't have a record store, but there are cool people. People go there. There's like a you know, little community to support it. So we should look for a spot there. And because it goes without saying, and, and a lot of, I don't know, for the people who might be on skew younger that are listening to this podcast, record stores used to be everywhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, Especially in a city like Seattle right. in nineteen. To find a neighborhood that was. didn't have a record yeah, store. Or didn't have it, five. <laughs> right. It's not now, 2017, when each city, maybe you're lucky if you have one. Yeah. So. Yeah, we would have been at the time like one of like 30 in Seattle. It's crazy. Like 30 uh, real record stores. A side note, do you remember the old sheet behind the counter at Other Music that had all the phone numbers of all the New York City stores? Oh, yeah. And it was right. like four <laughs> columns yeah. of eight, point, eight bullet point with phone <laughs> so numbers. crazy, yeah. Like 80 stores. Anyway, go yeah. on. So we, you know, we quickly realized, like, we couldn't even, Fremont was such a weird sort of close-knit community, we couldn't even, there wasn't a way, like, the classified to the newspaper to find a spot. We just started walking around the neighborhood, talking to everyone in the businesses, and be like, hey, we're thinking about opening a record store here. Do you know of any spots available? And that's how we found out about this sort of main floor of a house that was zoned for whatever commercial and uh and pretty quickly like told this dude what we're up to and he was like okay cool well here's it's fifteen hundred dollars a month do you want it so i i <laughs> right now i'm seeing in my head like a singles cameron crow style montage right. of you and jason walking around with a checklist with like with like a <laughs> yeah. with like a mud honey song playing <laughs> like just right. looking for rental properties right that's what we're doing it's raining out <laughs> it's raining and mm -hmm. you guys have you know flannel on and yeah 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 totally yeah um <laughs> Anyway, Stone Gossard <laughs> is in there somewhere. Right. He, right. Has a, he, he will be. <laughs> he has a cameo. <laughs> right. So we like figured it out really quickly, just on paper in a bar, like really this like very simple business plan, which is just like, this is how much it's going to cost. Here's our rent. Here's how much it'll cost to get stock. You know, like this, everything we could think of. Obviously, we knew some things from both working in a record sure. store. Here's how much we need to make. And we broke it down to like, you know, this much per month means this much per week, means this much per day, means like each hour we need to sell three CDs, one seven-inch, and a used LP or something like that. And we were like, it's pretty low I think stakes. we could do that. That's Whatever pretty, it was, we looked at it. In 1995, like, right. it's pretty low stakes. Yeah, so we're like, great, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so we got Jason's mom. Went, we did it for $30,000. Jason's mom lent us half the money, and the other half came from credit cards, and we just opened the stores in 1997, 20 years ago last week. And... uh and it was amazing. At the same time, I was still playing in bands and touring and doing things, kind of always doing that. Um, but the store, you know, existed barely. I mean, we were paying ourselves nothing sometimes, literally, sometimes just buying ourselves lunch. Sometimes we'd each get a couple hundred bucks if we had it. Um, probably about two and a half years. And then in 2000, the sort of main store in that neighborhood was called Glamorama, which is this kind of this big hippie thing that sold lots of stuff. But the woman who owned it was like the sort of mayor of the neighborhood. She put on all the events and everything. 
I was patchouli, just there. a lot of patchouli sales. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I was there one we, like weekend buying Christmas cards from her, just talking to her. And she was like, yeah, it's going to be so weird. This is the last time I'm selling Christmas cards. I was like, oh, why? And she told me she was leaving. And same kind of thing. The way that neighborhood was, she put, uh, she put us in touch with her landlord. And dude didn't want a credit check or anything. I was like, oh, cool. You guys are in the neighborhood? Yeah, if you want this space, it's yours. And so... It was the rent was way more, and right. so we were, we were like getting to the point where like, look, the small store is working. Like we have this teeny space that's kind of off the beaten path, but you know, Death Cab for Cutie are our friends, and they play right. in the store. Like right. that sort of the indie rock thing is really starting to happen in Seattle, and like Modest Mouse and all those bands kind of came by a lot, and that was like our scene. Whereas Easy Street was way more Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, and those dudes used to hang out at that store. Um, and we're like, yeah, we could probably keep doing this and it'd be good or we could take this risk. But man, it's a lot more rent. It's a way bigger space, which means we need more stock. We need more employees, all that stuff kind of staring at us. And we're just like, fuck it, let's do it. And we did it. And it like literally overnight really kind of took off. And a lot of other stuff was happening. Then KXP was becoming a thing. Just Seattle music in general was happening. And, uh, and it really quickly kind of grew into this scary, too big store for a while. This was still in Fremont. This is still in Fremont. Right. Yeah. Do you want another beer? I'm still good. Thanks. All right. I am. I think she's in the shower. Okay. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> this is a much longer story than I thought it would be. That's cool, man. Keep it coming. Uh, we got, we're got we at 530 right now. Still edit, right? So we got to leave. Oh, yeah. We should go soon. Soon. Uh, yeah, and here we are. <laughs> so, all right, man. Thanks for coming by. Um, so I mean, the, the, the rest of it's less interesting. But sort of all, to me, all the good stories and all the exciting parts are actually in those first few years of Sonic Boom, where it lead, you know led up to the point where the store got big and we hired people and opened more locations. And like, it was a really great run for for a while. And and somehow we kept it alive for 19 years and then sold it last year. It's just one store now, but that store does really well. And it's so you. But you guys, I mean, you guys were pretty um, iconoclastic. I mean, everybody knows Sonic Boom. Everybody of a certain ilk knows Sonic Boom. Seemed that way for a while. You guys know a lot of people. A funny anecdote that I'm shoehorning into this conversation only because I need, to, I want to tell it, and I love this story. Yeah, this is your podcast. I know exactly. This is um, so Nabil. So if you talk to most people in the record business, at in a certain swath of the record business, the independent record business especially, no, definitely know the name Nabil Ayers. From various from bands that he's mentioning, mainly from Sonic Boom, from the Control Group, now from 480. So he's a well-known dude. So one of the funny stories is Nabil and I are walking down Hudson Street one day. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about? I forgot about this. Yeah. So we're walking down Hudson Street one day, and um, in New York City, which is by our offices, and uh, I, I punch. I, we're going to get lunch, and I punch Nabil. And I'm like, dude, this fucking Duff McKagan's across the street. Holy shit. To be cool, what do we do? What do we do? Do we go? And Nabil, yo, Duff! <laughs> and Duff looks across the street and he goes, hey, Nabil, what's up? <laughs> and I'm sitting there freaking out like, what the fuck is going on? What the fuck? Here comes fucking Duff. Anyway, so that's just a side <laughs> that I did that I had to shoehorn. He's a Seattle there. guy. I exactly. Yep. The point is he's a Seattle guy, shopped at Sonic Boom a lot. Um, <laughs> So then you guys went through a couple different stores, a couple different locations here and there. Eventually, down to one location. Yep. Um, sold that to a longtime employee. But before that, you so you started um, control, the control group. Yeah, I'd done... And you were... So wait, fast forward, you played in a couple bands, The Long Winters, you did some European touring. Yeah. Um, playing drums with some big bands, opening for some big bands, um, and then you kind of put all that on ice. 
That was when I moved to New York, yeah. But so the control group was before all that. Okay. So this the control group was 2000. I think it's like you know the way a lot of people start record labels. I was running a successful record store. There were. I think actually the first thing I put out was I was in a band called Alien Crime Syndicate, not Alien Ant Farm, mm-hmm. not the one who got in the bus accident that time. And yeah. Everyone called me. <laughs> are you okay, dude? Are you okay? It's like, I'm fucking fine. I'm not in that band. If I knew you at that point, I would have called you and I would have asked Annie, are you okay? <laughs> right. Good one. Yeah. No, one. no one did that. Yeah. That's why you have a podcast. <laughs> uh, and I think so we made this record. Is this the first thing we put out? Yeah, this is the first thing I put out. We made this record and it didn't seem like we were going to get a deal. And I was like, I mean, I don't know why. I wouldn't just do this. I own a record store. I know enough people. I know enough about the business. But there's no better option. I can press a thousand CDs and hire a publicist and just do the things you would do and I'll call it the control group and we'll do it. So that's what we did. TCG 001. Right. Got super lucky. Um, had a great manager, sort of got a song on the commercial radio station in Seattle to end. Had like a couple other things happen and immediately signed to V2 and sold. I sold V2 that record, which is crazy. I'd put it out for like three months and then handed it over. And that was great, and that band went on to also be a band to sell what I don't know five thousand records on a major label or something like that. But a lot of but V2 also had some a great lot, times. A lot of V two bands only <laughs> sold five thousand right. records. Well, not Moby and the White Stripes, who the were White their bands at the time. Exactly. But, uh, anyway, really fun band. Still friends with those guys. Great dudes. And uh, but one of the one of the cool things that you did, and and the foresight that you had at a biz, as a businessman, was to kind of predict before a lot of people the vinyl resurgence. Ah. So you had I don't think you do, but you had for a while the Killers. Yeah. And the Kings of Leon rights on vinyl. Yeah. Because their labels... Because RCA and Island didn't want to press those on vinyl. Because they didn't know kids were buying vinyl. Right. Or maybe they knew, but for them to sell 2,000 records... It's too much of a hassle to even make it. It's too much of a hassle. For you to sell 2,000 records is... great. And to have those bands, yeah. Right. So here's this tiny little label, one guy in Seattle, putting out... Both of those records are multi-platinum. Yeah, yeah. Like (laughs) multi-multi-platinum. Well, yeah. So, which is cool. Um, Again, on another side note. Yeah. So then you have the control group, and then how the like how did you? Because I remember when you got hired, I was hired a couple months before you, and 4AD didn't have a U.S. label head, right? And and I remember getting the email <laughs> because I was hired like six months before, and I you know that was kind of my first label job, and I was still kind of I'm you know I'm still figuring out how it all works. I think everybody is, but I knew for a fact that. You don't hire some guy who owns a record store to run 4AD. <laughs> <laughs> so like that's what I thought. <laughs> right, right. I mean, how did you? Not to say how did you get that job. Oh, no, like, of course, that's a good question. Like how you know? So basically, the long and short. I mean, there are a million ways to get into the music industry. There are a million ways to get into the record business. There's a certain lineage from intern to label head that includes a lot of steps. Right. Run, running a department. Right. Running a marketing department, running a sales department is one of the big steps. <laughs> Working in a marketing department. And you just skipped all that stuff to go from running your own label, your own boutique label, to running one of the most bedrock independent labels in the world. Right. How'd yeah. that happen? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think the short version is the control group. So I started to put out more records because even though we sold my band's record, which was kind of the goal of the label... I'd, I felt like I'd done a lot of work to actually just sort of start a company and had a distributor and like I'd done all the things, all these things were in place, but I had zero records. So I started right. just like putting out records by other friends in Seattle and things like that. And some did terribly and some did well, but it was fun and you kind of learned a lot with Shout everyone. out Schoolyard Heroes. Oh yeah, those guys are great. Um, and fell into this weird Scandinavian thread 
Right. Going back to the, I don't know if we got to it in this iteration. It might have been the first recording that was erased. Uh, the control group focuses strictly on Scandinavian women. Thank you. <laughs> Not yeah. strictly, but predominantly. Right. And, and the killers. And the killers. <laughs> <laughs> so I I put out a record by a Danish band called Figurines, who a friend of mine just turned me on to because he saw them in Germany and thought I would like them, love them. That record did really well. A friend in L.A., new El Perro Del Mar's manager, who's a Swedish artist, female, and I think she just thought of me because I was into Scandinavian music, air quotes, which wasn't true. I just like this one Scandinavian band, but she was like, hey, someone needs to put out this El Perro Del Mar record in America. It's really great. Let me know if you want me to put you in touch with the manager. So I got in touch with him, loved that record, put out her record, and have put out every record since. I think I have five El Perro Del Mar records out, which is crazy. Um, and that led to the same manager, managed Licky Lee at the time. She was just starting... I put out the first EP before her Atlantic record came out, and that's right when I moved to New York. And my plan when I moved to New York was, I, I'd been touring in a band for a long time. I was like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm in my 30s. I'm gonna stop touring. This is a good break. I've been running the store for a long time. I'm gonna step back. I'll still co-own it with Jason, but he was gonna kind of take over and run it most of the time. I really want to just focus on my label, live in New York. I've saved money. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get a job. I'm just gonna like be in New York where everything's happening and work on the control group. I have these three bands who are doing really well. I'm going to sign more stuff. It's gonna. This is going to be great. This is going to be it. I'm in the game. And I went to a party maybe two months after moving to New York. It was ADA, who was my distributor and Beggar's distributor and Sub Pops and tons of labels distributor, um, and ran into Matt Harmon, who is now the president of Beggar's in America, but was the GM at the time. And I always knew tons of people there because Sonic Boom did so much business with that company and bought so many records and did promotions and in-stores, and so every time I would come to New York with a band... It's a great, great, great bunch of labels. <laughs> yeah, it's a good bunch of labels. I would go by the office and hang out with Helen and Rusty and Nils. Like, you know, I really like knew a lot of people there. Um, and then Gabe Spear, who worked at Sonic Boom for a long time, had recently started at Beggars in New York. Like, there's kind of this, I don't know, just felt like a close connection to them. So I was talking to Matt, who I didn't know as well as a lot of other people, and just kind of telling him my thing, I think probably pretty arrogantly, because you know my whole thesis was like, I'm not even looking for a job. I'm not even thinking about it for a year. I just I'm moved to New York. I'm going to make this happen. I've got this label. Here's what I'm doing. I'm going to fucking do it. Yeah. And the next day, he emailed me. He's like, hey, I know you said you're not <laughs> interested in a job, but there is one. 4AD has never had someone in America, and they want to hire someone. You know, it, it wasn't like, hey, do you want this job? It was, if you're interested in hearing more about it, let's right. get together, and I can put you in touch with the people in London. And so that to me was who really was it at the time? I mean, who was there's no as the product managers did it. So it was there me. was no there was no UK label head though. I guess not. It would have been Simon, yeah. But I mean, really, like Miwa and Yuvin or Todd were running those campaigns. Right, right, right. So it was kind of like I'm a ship. A with, job, but oh, <laughs> yeah, but it was a ship <laughs> without a captain. Right, right. And yeah, and that's at the time when the, all the labels wanted a person. Right, Trade had just hired someone. Excel had, and so right. Forty was the only one without someone. So. So I was, you know, I was like, of course, I'm not looking for a job, but what am I going to do? Not meet with Matt and hear about <laughs> this job at 4AD? Yeah. Fucking course. So yeah. we went and got coffee, and he kind of told me, explained to me more in detail how everything was set up and what the job was and everything. I was like, okay, let me, you know, let me think about it. And I was thinking about it, and I think, you know, I was probably kind of scared for the reasons that you're talking about. I was like, I've never, first of all, I've never had a real job. Right. I worked in a record store, I opened a record store, I played in bands, and now I run this small label and things are going pretty well. I wonder if I could even work in an office where people are accountable to me, where I have a boss, where there are, you know, like, real things yeah. happening. I don't Little know did you I know. Also, I don't know if I have the experience to do this. Like, I've obviously faked my way to this point, right. <laughs> where this guy right. wants to talk to me about it. But, I mean, come on, what happens when I talk to these British people? Right. And little did you know that 
Beggars is less of an office and more of a circus. <laughs> so you may not have an office experience. Well, I don't know what your experience was like there. I was probably busy when you were doing that stuff. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was out making hits. Um, <laughs> As a record producer. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah, like, like we do. Yeah. <laughs> so I think about a week had gone by, and I was... It wasn't. It was wasn't that I didn't want to do it. I think I was actually kind of a little bit scared to do so it. You were already living in New York. Yeah, I never. Yeah, yeah. Did, I never no, did I didn't that. move to New York for this job. Yeah. Okay. So and then Gabe, former Sonic Boom, current Beggars employee, calls me and he's he just starts yelling at me and he's like, "I hear people talking about you. What are you doing? Why are you not trying to do this job? You're fucking crazy. You're an idiot. You need to get a hold of these people. Like, get off your ass." I was like, "Okay, okay, okay." So I emailed Matt at this point, thinking like, "Fuck, I hope it's not too late." I was like, hey, I've been thinking about this. It'd be great if you could put me in touch. So he put me in touch with Simon Halliday, who's the worldwide head of 4AD. And we just had like a nice back and forth and email for probably a month or two, which was not at all intense. It wasn't at all about the job or about what they were looking for. It was more just like his background and my background and music. And we got along and a lot of the same stuff. Both love broadcast, who he'd signed at Warp. And uh, and just made a plan to get together for lunch in New York, which is, again, like really informal, casual. I mean, I suppose it was my interview, but it didn't feel like it. It was just right. like us sitting there for a while talking about stuff. Um, and I remember at the end of that lunch, this is very Simon, him saying, so how much wouldn't you work for? Or like <laughs> something, <laughs> some interesting phrasing that sounded sort of like an offer, but not <laughs> something. And, uh, and amazingly, a month later, I showed up at work in your office. Yes. And it's been great. I've been there almost nine years. It's crazy. 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 And, um, well, yeah. Uh, well, I think we could end it there. Okay. I don't, I mean, we, we, we shouldn't end it there. Well, we can come back for another episode sometime. Let's get drunker than hell at the show. <laughs> we did tonight. Come back, dude. Now, which reminds me of a band. I think I've sent you this band, Gnarly Davidson. They're a Lawrence, Kansas <laughs> band. Killer, like, sludge, like, fucking fierce band. They're great. And they, um, they recorded an EP, and I believe, if I'm getting this right, uh, it's Kelly Corcoran from Who Owns Love Garden. Oh right, right. Uh, put it out, and I believe if if I'm correct, and they can, if they're listening, they can correct me if I'm wrong. The A side they recorded at like 10 a.m. and they spent the whole day drinking, and the B side they did the exact same, same song. songs. Genius, genius, genius. So anyway, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to talk about, but uh, that's just I kind of wanted to get your story because it's an interesting story, and and um, I don't know, uh, I don't know many people who, like you said, I mean. You know, you've never really had a job, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I feel like there's a lot of people I know like that, and it, it's it's never really on purpose, right? It just kind of accidentally. <laughs> yeah. I wanted a job at Sub Pop, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, do you regret not having the massage room at Beggars like they have over there? Where the massage? You don't know about the massage room in in the London office? In Sub Pop? Oh, it's Sub Pop. No, no, in Seattle <laughs> they have a massage room. Yeah. No. Well, it's more like a nap room. <laughs> I swear to God, dude, when you walk, you walk out the elevator and the first hallway on your, because you know how when you walk out, everything's kind of over to your right? That's yeah, all orange. Is it orange? Right. <laughs> I thought it was green. <laughs> Same thing. Same thing. There's a, there's a nap room. <laughs> At least last time I was there. Uh, anyway. Cool. Um, tell Matt Harmon you need a nap room in the New York office. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I usually I play a song. Um, I don't license it. I just play it. I think you're allowed to do that in podcasts. Are you? you? Know, I, th- I hear a lot of big songs in podcasts. I want to play... Um, what are you going to play me out? I'm probably going to play an Aldous Harding song. Oh, interesting. Because I love that record. Okay, well, talk to Simon Wheeler and make sure you get permission to use it. Simon Wheeler, I'm not going to give my address out on this podcast, but I'm in Chapel Hill. You come find me if you want. 
Me and him got drunk at South by Southwest, and um, it was fun. Anyway, um, probably Aldous Harding, maybe Tune Yards, because we're going to see Tune yeah, Yards I right think now. Think about Kiss, King of the Nighttime World. If, uh, Could play some Kiss. Yeah, maybe I'll play a song that represents you. Maybe I'll play some Kiss. Um, maybe I'll play a Lemons tune. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, thanks for coming. We're going to go drink some beers. I'm happy that you're here. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. And there it is. There it was. My conversation with Nabil Ayers. One of the best dudes I know. Um, uh, I wish we had more time. There was a lot more to talk about. Some of it heavy, but we weren't in a heavy mood. We were in a fun mood because we hadn't seen each other in, in a few months. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm, it's a great story. He's a great guy. Uh, lives a life in music. Will continue to live a life in music. Um, all hyperbole aside, will, via his work at 4AD, continue to shape and push the direction of independent music um, going forward, I guess. Um, and I hope he comes back soon. I hope someday we can make an actual record together. Um, a quick side note, the story behind that little laugh was he came and played drums on what I thought was going to be my record. Um, ended up not kind of coming out the way I wanted it to, and it had nothing to do with the drums. Um, it had nothing to do with the performances by anybody. Everybody played really, really well, but I decided after hearing what we had recorded and mixed that I wanted to go into a studio and make a proper um, studio record, um, which is why that, <laughs> what Nabil thought we were recording an album, it actually just became demos. Um, but maybe when my solo record blows up, I'll release the deluxe version with the demos featuring Nabil on drums. He does get a thank you in the liner notes so, uh, of the actual record. But um, so someday he and I, someday soon, I hope, he and I will cut a record together. Um, anyway, thanks to Nabil. I'm going to play a song from one of the bands he drummed in for a long time. Probably the band he's maybe best known as the drummer of, a band from Seattle called The Long Winters. And the song, I believe, is called Rich Wife, I think was the one he asked me. Yep, he asked me to include that one from The Long Winters. So here it is. Nabil, thanks so much for coming down, hanging out. Shout out to Tune Yards, um, to Nate and Merrill, who that night played an absolutely lights-out show um, full of new songs. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's impossible. Not impossible, but it's not fucking easy to play for five or 6,000 people as they did at their show with Sylvanesso um, out at uh, Shakori Hills. It's not easy to play for that many people and kind of avoid all of the hits and all of the jams. And they did. And they, they destroyed. <laughs>